<laughs> Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I hope you guys are doing well. It's uh, interesting to be here. I'm, I'm here kind of on loan, as I like to tell people, uh, from the diocese in New York. So this is this is recording audio as well. Yeah. Uh, good to know. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> just, just need to make sure I'm careful. <laughs> um, so I, uh, my name is Father Cyril. I uh, or Cyril Antonios. So I served in New York in the Diocese of New York in New England under His Grace Bishop David. I actually I'm not a parish priest. I serve as a general priest, uh, specifically within the role or the function as a personal servant or a personal assistant to uh, His Grace Bishop David. Um, and it's a blessing, and uh, it's a blessing also to be here. Uh, I'm on loan, as I said, uh, to SMSV. Um, Father Bishoy is away for, he's on sabbatical. And uh, so I'm here every two weeks or so, so two weeks on, two weeks off kind of a thing. Uh, but it's great to be in Canada, eh? They told me to say that. <laughs> um, and uh, to get to know the area, to uh, I, I still haven't had a special or a specific visit, um, exclusive visit to Toronto, the city. I've pretty much stayed in Markham most of the time. But um, I'm hoping one of these days somebody will invite me to have some sushi. I'm still still waiting. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's uncanny, actually, the amount of Asian population in this area. You know, we uh, we like to always uh, well we you know we always bring up Chinatown in uh, in New York City as if it was a big deal, right? And apparently there's nothing. It's it's just a it's a blip. <laughs> it doesn't really do much. So um, so there's great Asian cuisine, and it's gonna take me a while to get through it all. But that's the plan. That's the plan. Um, it's a blessing to be here in Mississauga. You know, uh, to be here at the famous uh, Virgin Mary Saint Athanasius. Uh, I want to say cathedral, mini town, something like that. <laughs> I thought I should have brought my car into the building to get around, <laughs> but it's my second time here. It's a blessing, of course, uh, to take the blessing of the fathers, Father Angelos and uh, Father Botros, Father Botros as well, and I took the blessing of Father uh, Pichoy uh, during my last visit here as well. So this is actually a pretty heavy topic to talk about. It's salvation. Um, this is probably a topic that you can have a series of lectures on. And so I'm going to try to keep it, well, the last time I did this, and you know, <laughs> we went over. So we were about an hour and 20 minutes, but I'll try to cut it down in half somehow through God's grace. Um, but anyway, I want to start with, and, and this is kind of the title to the, to the talk, uh, Are You Saved? There we go. And this always brings to mind our friends here from the evangelical community. Have you guys ever been walking down the street once and been confronted with somebody that came up to you and looked you straight in the eye and said, Sir, are you aware of the saving grace of Christ? Have you heard of the message of Jesus Christ? 
are you saved? And uh, I'm sure the look on your face is just like the look I had on my face <laughs> the first time I was approached by somebody uh, that asked me if I was saved. And so I am going to try to bring back the uncomfortable memories by asking you guys if you are saved. And I want to kind of gauge the type of responses I get. If somebody walked up to you in the street as you were walking at the supermarket, you know, um, at Adonis, apparently it's a big, big deal here, um, and went straight up to you and said, have you heard of the, the loving message of Jesus Christ? Are you saved? What would you say? What would you say? It's better to raise your hand than for, to let me pick, <laughs> even though it's going to be uncomfortable either way. <laughs> what would you guys say? Just go ahead and pick. Let's save time. Well, I'm going to start with Aki because, you know, he, he put me in this situation. So, <laughs> so Aki, somebody came up to you and said, are you saved? What would be your answer? Uh, I would say yes, I am saved. You would say yes, you are saved, okay? Anybody have a different answer? Yeah. <clears throat> yes? What, what do I need saving from? What do I need saving from? Okay. Anybody else? Anyone take a jab at it? There's no right or wrong answer at this point. Like at this point. Do they have a different definition of saved, though? Like, they think just if you believe in Christ, you're going to enter kingdom of heaven automatically. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the different... So, yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about the different understandings of salvation. That's why we... Uh, is this how it works? No? Okay. Uh, how do we go back? There we go. So that's why I kind of titled the, the, the Orthodox Belief of Salvation, how and why it works, the Orthodox belief in salvation, all right? <clears throat> but I want to know what your answer would be, according to what you believe uh, in terms of the concept of salvation. Anybody? Yes? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> okay, okay. Anybody else? Mm, one more. Are we all kind of within the same, same framework? Yes. In the process. Very interesting. Very interesting answer. Very interesting answer. All right. So, <clears throat> we have so far, yes, I'm saved. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, what do you mean by salvation? I hope so. I am in the process of being saved. All right. So, I think somebody has kind of listened to the lecture where I took some of my inspiration behind the behind this presentation from this PowerPoint from. Um, so, are you saved? Now, for us to approach the question of are you saved, we need to know a few things, right? There needs to be some kind of a foundation, some kind of a background to the concept of salvation, right? And so we go back to the question of what do you mean by salvation that we got from this side of the room, right? What do I mean by salvation, what am I being saved from? Am I being saved from a boring meeting here with this certain Father Cyril who just drags on and keeps talking? Am I being saved from an awkward blind date? Am I being saved from what? What am I being saved from? So to know what I'm being saved from, I need to know or I need to realize what it is I got myself into that you know leads to me being or me needing to be saved. And to know that, we have to know a few things. We need to ask who God is, right? 
if I'm being saved, and supposedly my Savior is God, we're all pretty much Christians in this room, right? So when I ask you who saved you, it doesn't, doesn't matter whether you, you believe in you're saved, you're not saved, or you're being saved, or you're hoping for salvation. At the end of the day, we all believe that we are being saved by who, or we are saved by who? By God, right? So who is God? Who is this person, this entity, this essence, this being who is doing the salvation, right? Who are we to this being that he wants to save me? Children. We are children. That's an idea. That's, that's one way of looking at it, yeah. But who are we? What's our significance? What's the significance of our relationship with God uh, that would lead him to save us? I mean, at the end of the day, he's God. He doesn't have time for this kind of thing, does he? Why were we created to begin with, right? If I need salvation, this, you know, if I'm going to cause a mess, <laughs> it would have been so much easier for God to have avoided you know, putting himself in that situation, right? Why was I created? What happened? Why do I need salvation? What did I do? Or what did I do now? <laughs> right? What mess did I get myself into? And how do we attain salvation? How do we attain salvation? Now, I'm going to go over some basics. There's a lot of basics because we need to kind of build a foundation before we start going into the different models, the different concepts, the different imageries that we get from sacred scripture, from holy scripture, and from holy tradition through the interpretation and the writings of the early church fathers to be able to kind of visually understand or conceptually comprehend what salvation is all about. So, first of all, I need to know that God has attributes, right? I'm asking myself who God is. How do I know God? God's got certain attributes, right? You know, in Genesis, it tells us what? It tells us that we are created in God's image, Creating God's image. God's image, and then according to his likeness. according to his likeness, right? Those are two separate things. You know, Moses isn't repetitive. They're two separate things, and they refer to two separate things. Being created in God's image refers to the immortality of our soul, our ability to to think and to reason, and so on and so forth. There are a list of other things. But being created in his image refers to his attributes refers to the attributes that we share with him and that we are able to know him through, right? So, I'll give you an example. And I'm not racist, I promise. All right? If I walk down the street and crawl, well, I, I cross the street and I go into Adonis supermarket. Is that how you guys pronounce it? Adonis. Adonis. The Egyptian way of pronouncing the name of the store. Adonis. If I go into Adonis and I run into a person of Asian descent, I know that this person is different than me in terms of what? In terms of nationality, in terms of heritage, in terms of certain things, right? But if I run into Uncle Magdi at Adonis, right? And Uncle Magdi looks a certain way, and he talks a certain way, and he's yelling at his wife across, you know, the aisles in a certain way, <laughs> making sure she doesn't forget to buy that extra can of food. <laughs> then I realize what? I realize that Uncle Magdi has certain attributes that I'm familiar with, that I share, right? If it's physical attributes, if it's dialect, 
if it's mannerisms, right? These are attributes. And so God created us with the likeness of his what? His attributes. And so it's through our sharing of the same attributes, even though our attributes, obviously, even though they are likened to God's attributes, are somewhat limited, right? Um, though I can still use those attributes to what? To recognize him. So he had the attributes first. He gave me a simplified version or a limited version of those attributes so that I would be able to understand him through the attributes that he gave me. Is that confusing enough? So not only do I share in his image, or I'm created in his image, but I, I also have his likeness in terms of his attributes. What are some of his attributes? Love. Oh, we're getting there. So these are some of his attributes according to the church fathers. Now, we're orthodox. What does that mean, being an orthodox church? Straight. It means straight, right? It means we're straight and narrow. What that means is I don't come up with stuff on my own. I believe in holy scripture. I believe in holy tradition in general, which encompasses what? Encompasses holy scripture, the interpretation of holy scripture according to the church fathers, the liturgical practices, the sacraments of the church, everything basically, the faith that God taught to his apostles, and this is a quote from St. Athanasius, that Christ taught to his apostles, that the apostles preached to their disciples, and that their disciples, who are our church fathers, these are the people that we refer to as the church fathers, have kept even to the extent of with their own blood. All right? This is what it means to be Orthodox Christian. It means that I always refer my belief to what? To sacred scripture, to the fathers, and to the church. I never deviate. I never come up with my own answer. I never come up with my own viewpoint. I always go back to what? To the church fathers. And the church fathers, according to all their writings, have kind of compiled a list of the attributes of God from all of the various writings from all the various church fathers. God is spirit. God is eternal. He is all good. This is a very important point. He is omniscient. He is all righteous, almighty, omnipresent. He's unchangeable. He's self-sufficing to himself. In other words, he is not in need of us. We are in need of his uh, godliness or godhood, godhead, sorry. And he is all blessed. Good? So we got a kind of a, a well-rounded idea. Now, each one of these can be a series of lectures, by the way. So we're going to go and skip ahead. Now, like we said, who are we? We need to know that out of God's abundant all goodness, out of God's abundant all goodness, and through his love and his mercy, he created us. Not because he needs us, but what? Because he has so much goodness in him, and that goodness is shown to us in love, right? It's shown to us through his love and through his mercy. These are the two ways that God manifests his goodness. He's a good God. And that kind of leads you into trust as well, but, you know, we don't want to go all over the place. All right? Let us make man in our image. We are the only creation where God took counsel within the, the persons of the Trinity <clears throat> to make us. In other words, he didn't really sit down with, you know, he didn't bring three seats and the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son sat down and they started discussing over a cup of Starbucks how they'd make us. But what this means that is that he took a very personal interest in our creation very personal interest in our creation, that we were made according or 
in his image, sorry, and according to his likeness. What's another another example of that? Right? What's another example of that? In our life, whose uh, image are we made in? Whose likeness? Our parents. Our parents, right? Well, Christ is the Son of God. He's God, so yeah. But yeah, but where do we see this? We see this in our parents, right? So what does this tell you about God? He's our... That's how he sees himself, and that's how he expects us to understand him. And that's that's pretty much the name of the game. If you're my son, and I'm your father, then I what you, and you what me. Starts with an L. Love. I love you, and you love me. I care for you, and you care for me. And when you get in trouble, what happens? Whose job is it to bail you out? Dad's job, right? It's always dad's job. It's never mom never goes to the to the police station to bail you out. They always send dad. <laughs> right? God forbid that you guys ever have to be <laughs> in that position. I don't know who you've been talking. <laughs> what is our purpose? So God created us with a purpose, right? I mean, ultimately the purpose is what? Is for him to share his goodness with us, his goodness in the form of love, in the form of mercy with us, and so on and so forth. But we have a purpose on earth, too. We were created according to the fathers as the what? As the crown of all creation on earth. All the world's creation was created according to God's word, but we were created and molded with a very specific interest, very, very focused way by God. And we are what? We are the crown. We are the crown of creation in the world, right? And the first purpose of man is the glory of God. I glory God in my existence, right? My existence, my creation in me is a form of glory to God, right? And in return, I give God glory. So I am God's glory walking, or was, or I hope to be. And at the same time, my job, my purpose is to give glory to God. Man is... Can I put this up? Yeah, yeah just a mic. It'll be a little easier. Kind of, there we go. Thank you, Aki. Therefore, just as... Where where we go? Oh, my God. No, no. All right. Okay, man is called to perfect himself, to strive towards the likeness of God. I'm created according to the likeness of God. And so that is my main thing, right? Is to perfect myself. That is my main goal, is to remain in that likeness of God. Man has been placed as a crown of all creation to unite all things to God. Remember, God went to Adam and he said, what, gather all the animals to yourself and give them names. What does that do? What is that signifying? It's signifying that I am what? That I am on top, that I am supreme to the rest of creation in the world. And what? That it is... Hmm? That I have authority over them, and that I am what? Between them. Why didn't God name them? He gave that authority, He gave that privilege, that honor to me, so that I might become what? I might become what is between God and the rest of creation. Man is ultimately created to unite with God in love, to share in His glory. Right? Ultimately, that is our purpose, is the unification with God, 
and to share in his glory, to unify with God, right? Do I want to ever be away from my parents? If I love my parents, I never want to be far from my parents, right? I always want to be with my parents. I don't want anything to get in between me and the people that I love. And at the same time, I establish, uh, sorry, I inherit all the honor and all the glory of my parents, right? Now, you know, if we think of it from a financial perspective, you know, I inherit their assets or whatever like that, but at the end of the day, I live in their glory. We think of, we think of who, what parable do we think of when we think about the son living in the glory of his father? The parable of? The prodigal son, the prodigal son right? Mark I remember you. <laughs> Sorry, I just I just noticed. <laughs> um, the parable of the prodigal son. What happened after eating and and, and and dunking his head in a thing of of mud and food scrapes with a bunch of swine? What happened? He went back to his father. He united with his father. And automatically what happened? His father called for his cloak and for his ring and for his uh, belt, and, and he called for a feast, and he called for the fatted cow. You know, he called for some awesome Angus steaks. Uh, <laughs> this is the glory of his father. This is what he inherited when he is united with his father. He lives in his father's glory, in his father's riches, and his father's love. Who lived in that situation but didn't realize it? His older brother. His older brother came and he said, you never gave me this. And his father said, you never asked. You don't have to ask. If you're with me, you live with me, you are living in my glory, you are united with me. You have access to everything. You don't even need to ask. But you don't realize it. So the fathers sometimes ask us, they say, really, who was the prodigal son? The one who physically left his father and strayed away? Or the one who was living with his father the whole time and not being united with being far away from him. What happened? Why do we need salvation? All right, what'd you guys do? <laughs> what happened? What mess did you get yourself into now? Man was created sinless. He was created innocent and with free will. Remember, he was created in the image of God. And so he had free will. He had reasoning, right? God had to create him with free will if he was expecting him to be, to be a reasonable creation with reason, with understanding, with knowledge, right? If I love you, but you, you know, I love you, for instance, right? You don't want to love me back. If, if I force you to love me, is that true love? No. That's not true love, right? If anything, that's, you know, love for money, which has got a derogatory term I'm not going to use. <laughs> you know how the world has, uh, unfortunately, the world has kind of, you know, other than prostitution, Things have gotten so bad now where you can pay someone for companionship. You can pay someone to spend the night with you snuggling. This is how bad it is. Where I pay someone for companionship. I pay someone to try to trick me into what? Into the sense that I'm being loved. But is it true love? Not true love. It's not. It's affection for money. It's not true love. So he was preserved and joined with God through God's grace. When God created man, he loved man, he gave him reason, and he gave him free will so that it would be of his own. Um, let me just turn this off, sorry. 
it would be of his own free will, his own decision to love God back. And he created him with grace. Now, grace is the indwelling of God's in you, right? Or the indwelling of God's grace. Well, uh, some other fathers actually um, gave it imagery of what? Image, uh, special imagery of being a cloak on the outside. We know that God's grace blessed Adam and blessed Eve, and protected them and preserved them from what? From corruption and all these things, right? And so they lived in the Garden of Eden, or they lived in paradise, and they were living in God's grace. It was this unifying power that joined God to Adam and Eve, or joined Adam and Eve, I should say, to God. This power was very special, and we realize this power, uh, God's grace, that is, and the contrast between having it and not having it, when God goes to Adam and says, well, other than where are you? He goes to Adam and he says what? Now you will eat from the sweat of your brow. Right? From the sweat of your brow. Now, when he says now you will eat from the sweat of your brow, well, what was I, you know, how was I eating before? You were eating through my grace. And even though you were tending to the garden, what you were actually doing was working through my grace. And so all your work was effortless. All your work was blessed. It was through my grace that you existed, that you progressed, that you lived a happy, joyful, preserved life. And now, Eve, you will feel the pain of what? Of child rearing, of childbirth, right? In contrast to what? You weren't susceptible to that pain before. You weren't susceptible to pain. You weren't susceptible to suffering. You weren't susceptible to all these other things, right? And so, when we lost God's grace, we lost God's blessing. We lost God's indwelling in us, and His protection, and uh, His works through us. By separating from God's grace through sin, man's nature, or the image of God, was corrupted, or susceptible, or weakened, weakened to sin, basically. All right? Not the image so far in terms of corruptibility, but what happened? When we lost God's grace, we became sinful. And in became, becoming sinful, we corrupted our nature. This nature of innocence. This nature of sinlessness before. Right? Now, we became sinful. And we became... Uh, we became... What's the word I used? Weakened, susceptible, or inclined to sin. We became inclined to sin. We can easily sin now. Right? There's a natural or unnatural, if you want to call it, inclination to sin. I don't want to stay too much on this. Um, and then separation from life obviously leads to what? We said that. Who is life? Who is the source of life? God is the source of life. So when I separated from God, by losing His grace, what happened? I became susceptible to death. I didn't have access to the tree of life in paradise anymore. That was sustaining me. And now I was corrupt and corrupting and corruptible and on a downward spiral towards death. Through sin, death entered into the world, as St. Paul explains, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sin. We inherited sin. We inherited this corrupt nature that was inclined 
to sin. Okay? Death took a grasp on humanity that we could not free ourselves from. Now, I'm corrupt, right? I was walking, you know, and, and whistling and, and, and in my own little world, and then I fell into this big pit, and I broke my leg, right? I fell into this pit, I broke my leg, so now I am stuck in a pit, and I, there's no way for me to climb out. Why? Because now I am physically mean, right? And so I am unable to get out of my rut. I'm stuck. I need help. I need help. Bravo. Bravo. I need somebody's help, right? In other words, I lost God's grace. I don't have God's grace indwelling in me any longer. How do I redeem God's grace? I can't redeem it again on my own. Why? Because my sinful nature has corrupted... Sorry, because of my, my nature has been corrupted, right? So I can't get out of it. It's like a cycle. It's like an endless cycle of being stuck in a rut. I fell in the thing. I can't climb up because when I fell, I broke my leg. Da, 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 da. Same thing. I sinned. I lost the grace of God. I can't gain the grace of God any longer because I sinned, and I'm stuck in this rut. And so somebody had to come and pull me out of the ditch or out of the hole. Salvation, Christ did something for us that we could not do ourselves. I'm going to go a little faster now. Man needed to be saved from death and return to his original nature, right? That was what we needed to do. That was that was the fulfillment of the economy of salvation, right? That was God's plan. If we remained in our rut, what would happen? God's plan and his goodness and his love for us would be stopped. Something had to happen. Something had to be done. Man's corrupted nature and separation from God prevented him from being able to save himself. If only man, if only man was able to overcome death and his sinful corrupted nature, only then would he be able to join with God once more. And so salvation, and so what happened? Salvation, which was offered by God, is the restoration of what? Of my original my original situation. Right? The original situation of my nature being created in God's image. Or according to his likeness, I should say. Models, uh, images, and symbols. God desires everyone to be saved. Right? So now, Adam and Eve had kids. They had John and Joanna and, you know, you guys name them. <laughs> they had all these children. They had us. Right? All of humanity afterwards. Was salvation only offered to Adam and Eve? It's, over, it's offered to all of us. We are all individual beings now, right? So salvation is offered to all of us. It's our choice whether to accept it or not. Bravo. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? As St. Paul writes in 1 Timothy. God revealed his plan to save mankind from the very start. God's good intention was revealed from the very start. As soon as he kicked, um, as, as soon as they were kicked out of paradise... What did God say to the serpent? He said what? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right? Right from the get-go. This is probably the first prophecy that God made, or the first prophecy that is recorded in the Bible regarding what? Our salvation. Regarding our salvation. I'm not going to leave you behind. 
I'm not going to leave you in your rut. Okay? I will have a plan. I have a plan. I have a plan of saving you. I have a plan of what? Of destroying death. Remember, what does it say? It says the seed of woman, right? The seed of woman is what? Who's the seed of woman? Who is he referring to? Mary. No. Christ, right? The seed of woman is Christ. What's the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent is what? Is death. What what can come out of out of Satan other than death? But the woman will give seed, will give birth to what? More humans. And the specific one of them will be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. The head of the serpent. What is the highest the highest thing that the Satan is proud of? Is that he gave us death. He led to our death. This is his crowning achievement, right? That's why it's right on top of his head. And so Christ came and he crushed the head of the serpent. He crushed death. Um, in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were roaming around for 40 years, they rebelled against God. And as a curse to them, uh, there was a swarm of serpents. I don't think that's the right term for it, but an infestation of serpents in the area. And the serpents were poisonous, and they were biting people and poisoning them. And so the people, through Moses, through Aaron, through uh, through their intercessors, went to God, and they, they pleaded with God to forgive them. And God told them to do what? He told them to do what? He told them to find a serpent, Right? brass serpent and to hang this brass serpent on a wood piece of wood right what is the piece of wood symbolized the cross what does the serpent symbolize uh, you guys are smart very smart it doesn't symbolize Christ <laughs> it symbolizes what it symbolizes death on the cross that God that Christ killed death Right? He destroyed death by death on the cross to symbolize that what? That death was crucified. Christ was crucified and with him he crucified death in the shame way, shameful way that we understand or they understood the cross back then, right? And so we see this imagery all throughout the Old Testament. All the Old Testament is just a bunch of what? A bunch of imagery. If you study the Old Testament, which I encourage you to do, uh, because it is amazing, you'll see so many imageries uh, all relating to our salvation, all relating to Christ and the salvific effort that he would come to do uh, in the fullness of time. Even the names of the people, they all had specific symbols, all had specific meanings. Anyway, salvation is a work of God or a work of God's grace and is offered to us as a gift. Salvation is not us. We can't do anything to provide for ourselves salvation. There is one thing, there is one, we have a role in salvation. But at the end of the day, salvation could not have been attained just by us. We couldn't do anything on our own to save ourselves. Salvation is a work of grace, a work of a gift. It is a gift of God, right? It's through God's power, through God's energy. It's not because we earned it or are worthy of it something that God provides for us as a gift, right? And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. The law of what? Repentance. But 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ came and he, through his grace, he offered us his grace in the form of salvation, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation ultimately is a gift, but we have a role. That if you confess your, your, with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, these verses are very important. Why? Because these are the verses that a lot of evangelical brothers and sisters use to justify that, in a misguided manner, that salvation is a one-sided thing, right? It's a one-sided gift. It's a one-sided effort. Salvation is provided by God. And if you just believe in it, then you will have salvation. You will have access to God's salvation. You will be granted God's salvation. Yes, if you believe in it, okay, you'll be granted God's salvation. But what is belief? What is true faith? Our faith is a living faith manifest in our works. So we want to talk about faith and works. You can never have an understanding of faith without understanding works. And that's why the Orthodox Church says what? That you are saved by faith and works. But it's enough for the Orthodox Church to say, that, to say what? That you are saved by your faith in God's saving grace. So long as what? You have true faith. What is true faith? St. James tells us, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? I thought faith could save him. I thought St. Paul just said faith could save him. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, such as our friends. Uh, where am I? <laughs> you have faith and I have works. See, some people will say, you have faith and I have works. Sometimes we fall into that pit, right? We go to our, our, our friends and we tell them, what? well, you have your faith but I have my works. But sometimes I do works without really having faith, just as a habit, just as uh, a form of, of uh, humanitarian spirit, right? There are many atheists in the world, unfortunately. Many of those are, and, and there are many non-Christians in general, right? Are they all evil? Are they all horrible people? No. Absolutely not. In fact, actually, some of them, you know, great people. And we hear about one of them in, in the book of Acts. We hear, we hear about Cornelius. He was so great, such an amazing human being, that God told him to go what? To go look for St. Peter to teach him about the real faith. He already had love. But there's a difference, and this is another few lectures, sorry. There's a difference between love in the humanitarian sense, that I am loving my brother and sister, and love in what? In the divine sense, that I sacrifice. It's a sacrificial love. Anyway, that's a different story. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So works, when we talk about works, it is the manifestation of our true faith, the convictions of our true faith. So this is what is referred to um, when we're talking about faith. It's what is um, 
expected. This is what they're really talking about, true faith. And so our part <coughs> as free beings, having free will, is this, according to uh, Augustine, St. Augustine. But God made you without you. God made you without you, right? So this is how we're going to link what we just talked about in terms of faith and works with our dilemma right now. God made you without you, right? Did he call you up or send you a text message and say, listen, I'm thinking of making you. Is that, is that cool with you? No, he didn't. You didn't offer, uh, you didn't, after all, give any consent to God to making you. How were you to consent if you didn't even exist, right? So while he made you without you, he doesn't justify you without you. So he made you without your knowing it. Uh, he justifies you with your willing consent to it. So this is now where we tie the whole faith and works thing, right? So right now, as it is, I need justification. I need salvation, right? And I have my free will. God can't force salvation on me. I have to believe in God's salvation, and I have to live that belief. I have to live that faith. These are how these two connect. And this is called holy synergism. This is a very, very important orthodox concept. And this goes to the foundation of our spiritual life. All right? A lot of times, uh, actually, I'll, I'll talk about this afterwards. But what is holy synergism? Holy synergism, or holy synergy, is this relationship that we have with God. It's a cooperative relationship. Okay? God offers us. He invites us to accept his salvation, but we have to do our part of accepting through faith and through works the salvation which he has offered us. This is our role. If I don't accept God's salvation, and many don't, many don't, intentionally don't, the innovators of the concept of atheism, right, the modern innovators of atheism, will not tell you that there is no God, but will go to the point and tell you what? I, even if there is a God, and they know deep down inside that there is, even if there is a God, I still won't believe in Him. Why? Because He limits my abilities. He limits my freedom. Because of a misunderstanding, because they are misguided. But at the end of the day, what? They made a conscious decision not to accept God. Not to accept His salvation. Salvation is attained through the salvific work of God's grace. God offers it to us on a golden platter, not even a silver platter, right? And our acceptance of that salvation through a life of repentance and righteousness and in striving towards what? Towards perfection. This is our original purpose, right? So I, what I'm trying to do is, is to live my life according to how I was created initially, according to my original nature, right? Christ offered me that salvation. I accepted, but now what happens? If I don't live in grace, if I continue sinning, then have I practically accepted that salvation? No, right? How are we on time? we got 13 minutes. <laughs> right? Or was it a half-hour uh, talk? I hope it wasn't a half-hour talk. We're okay? All right. Any questions? Are we on the same page? Because we're about to go now into, like, overdrive. Any questions? Any concerns? Any arguments? Is that coming for me? <laughs> Thank you very much. God bless you. <laughs> All right. A lot of times, a lot of the youth and a lot of us actually think and act and live our spiritual life in this way. And I think, uh, I hope we don't get this from 
the famous St. Moses, the, uh, the Strong's movie, right? You guys ever watch St. Moses, the, the, well, they call him St. Moses the Black, but actually his name is St. Moses the Strong. That is the original way we used to call him by, you know, and, and there was a church in another state, I will not name where, who had a festival going on, and they had non-cops in the church, and they were giving the non-cops a tour of the church and pointing out the various saints on the walls, and Abu Nan caught himself uh, a little too late, and he pointed at St. Moses the Strong, and he said, is this, this is St. Moses uh, the African-American. <laughs> it's an awesome story. It's an awesome story. And, and it reminds us to make sure that we remember St. Moses as the strong. Why is he strong? He was strong against his temptations, his lusts. Strong against sin. Great saint, one of my favorites. Um, but anyway, you know, there's always a scene, even in the story, you don't have to watch the movie, where, where he's confessing his sins and there is a scene or an appearance of an angel with a, a blackboard with all his sins written down and the angel is there with a nice, you know, you know these, uh, it's probably a dry erase board and he's got the dry erase uh, eraser and he's just, what, he's cleaning the board. Those dry erase boards come white as it is so when you clean the black off or the color off, what happens? It remains white, signifying purity of heart, right? But that's not really how it works. This was just an imagery an imagery signifying what? That his sins had been forgiven. That he had fully repented, his sins had been forgiven. What really happens is not a checklist of sins. I don't come into Abuna, uh, into confession, sorry, with Abuna, and I say, all right, Abuna, so according to my memo pad, I did this and this and this and this and that, um, and um, some of this, and, you know, so uh, please read the, uh, pray the absolution for me. I bow my head. He prays. Oh, all right. My uh, my whiteboard is nice and clean. I get to start all over again. <laughs> right? No, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. What I'm trying to do is to strive towards what? Towards perfection. I can attain perfection. I can attain sinlessness through God's grace. That's what I'm trying to strive towards. It's a life of continuous what? Repentance and living and building my spiritual life. You know, when Adam was created, he was created innocent. What does that mean? It means he was created very basic. He still needed to progress and develop spiritually. You know, some of us are probably more developed than, than, uh, than Adam ever was, right? We develop. No pain, no gain. Everybody familiar with that? No pain, no gain. Sometimes it takes a little bit of sinning and overcoming sin through God's grace for us to what? To develop spiritually, to develop our spiritual lives. And so don't think of it, you know, don't go crazy and say, I wouldn't, oh my God, what if like I die in a car accident and like I didn't get to confess and I had just done this and da, 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 da. No, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. God's not there with a checklist of things. So long as you are continuously living a life of repentance, continuously striving towards perfection, in the presence of God. You have to have a relationship. There's a precedent or a, a foundation to all this, right? So, synergism is our life with God. Our striving towards perfection through His grace. We were walking on our merry way. We fell into a ditch. He got us out of the ditch. Now we need to complete our journey, right? What is our journey? Striving towards perfection. Striving towards our unity with God. Will we ever get 
fully with God? God's so deep. The fathers teach us what? That even after we die from this world, even in heaven, we still have a lot more to learn. We still have a lot more spiritual depth to attain. We will keep going and we will never fully attain it. Why? Because God is so big. He's omniscient. He's uh, omnipotent. He's everything. His nature is so deep. We will never get to the end point. There is no end point with God, right? Um, So, you guys are familiar, I'm sure, with this scene. We've all seen this, you know. Uh, personally, it's the it's the scene of two cliffs and the uh, and the cross of Christ uh, crossing over those two cliffs to create a bridge. Now, of course, there's always this top part, so I always wonder how this guy's gonna climb over here. <laughs> but anyway, that's neither here nor there. What this picture is is God is here, and we need to cross over to Him, right? What did Christ do? Christ came and He offered us salvation. But he's not going to come and just carry this guy and carry him over. We need to cross. We need to make the journey. We need to make an effort to attain, to accept that salvation. But more importantly, to what? To strive towards what we should have been doing from the get-go if we hadn't sinned. And that is what? Unification with God. Developing our relationship with God. Now, um, you know, I'm not going to go over this slide because this is a little too... uh, uh, a little too deep, but really what I want you to understand is that the fathers uh, have struggled with trying to explain to us what salvation is, the concept of salvation, right? It's very tough to understand the concept of salvation because it's a mystery. You know, we all are familiar with the seven mysteries, the sacramental mysteries of the church, but there are other mysteries, like the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of crucifixion, and the mystery of the resurrection, and the mystery of salvation in general. It's not easy to understand. So what they've done is they've provided imagery for us, right? Sometimes that we take that imagery and we kind of skew it a little, right? And we misunderstand it. We create all types of conflicts and, and challenges for it. But I want to go over the five type of imageries that are presented by the church fathers when it comes to salvation. So this is how we understand salvation, that we went over the background, uh, the backstory to salvation. Now we're going to go over now how salvation is offered to us, how it was accomplished through different types of imagery. Salvation is an exchange of gifts. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. What did he do? He gave up his glory. He humbled himself, as St. Paul explains, and he came down to earth, and he took upon himself what? Our sins. And our stresses and our challenges and our suffering and all these things he took upon himself in life and in death. He also shared with us in our death, right? And he gave us what? In exchange for it. He gave us salvation. He gave us life. He gave us God's grace. He gave us his grace. Uh, This is a beautiful thing. Um, I don't want to go into all the, the things. God became man that we might become God with a lowercase g. A lowercase g. Not becoming God in His divine essence, but becoming God in His what? As partakers of the divine, as Saint Peter says in in First or Second Peter, I forget. Um, partakers of the divine. What does that mean? Do I partake in the essence of the divine? No, but I partake in the in the what? In the glory, in the salvation, in the light, in all the things that I had access to before I fell in the ditch, right? This is something that we 
praise in the Holy Psalmody. I know you guys all attend midnight praise on Wednesdays and Saturday nights and so on and so forth. Um, but this is in the Theotokeia of the midnight uh, uh, praise on Wednesdays and Fridays. He took what is ours and gave us what is his. This is a very essential, very essential imagery in our what? Of in our salvation, in, in the salvation that God provided. We praise and glorify him, and we exalt him, which is only natural to do. Second way of looking at salvation is as a ransom, as a ransom, right? Uh, St. Mark, in St. Mark, for even the Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Right? What are we talking about? Now, if we have some imagery, but we don't, want, we don't want to take that imagery too far. We have some imagery. Somebody is tied down. He is under arrest. He, he's kidnapped, right? And I have to pay something to release him. So the object of this imagery is what? Is to show that something was given for the sake of the release of something else. My release from the bondage of sin. My release from the grasp of death. What was given? The precious blood of Christ, right? St. Paul tells us, um, uh, sorry, St. Peter tells us what? Peter the Apostle, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. I should probably read from here. Like silver, <laughs> I'm going blind. <laughs> like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition, according to your traditions of how your culture works. No, but with the precious blood of Christ, this is the most valuable thing. When you come to Abuna, don't be dismayed if he doesn't give you enough blood in the mystir, right? In the spoon. Because even the smallest particle of that blood is enough to save the whole universe. You know, sometimes I won't be saved enough. <laughs> right? It, it, they do, God's blood is so precious. It does not compare with the corruptible things like gold and silver. Right? Nothing compares to the precious blood of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Do not conform to the world. You are now free. You are now free, and your freedom costs a lot. It costs a lot. It costs the blood of Christ himself. Uh, redemption, the word redemption, by the way, just wanted to point this out. Redemption was a term used in the marketplace referring to a purchase. You guys have a David Buster's here, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you get all those tickets, what do you go? Uh, what, what do you do with them? You go and you redeem them for a? Price. For a toy. <laughs> Or stickers or a pencil, uh, depending on how well you did that night, right? Or how long you've been saving, as some of my friends have been But anyway, you redeem it, right? Christ came, and he gave his blood, and he said, I redeem humanity. Mr. David Buster's guy behind the counter. I redeem humanity, not the teddy bear. <laughs> Salvation is a sacrifice. This is so amazing. And this is probably one of the most popular imageries all throughout the Old Testament referring to our salvation is the imagery of the what? Of sacrifice, okay? Um, there are so many sacrifices that we read about in the Old Testament. The Passover lamb, the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat sacrifice, the burnt offering. These are some things I encourage you to go back and read about. Otherwise, we'll never finish, all right? The blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb, bravo. What is the blood of the lamb? Who is the lamb? The lamb is Christ. His blood is a sacrifice. What does this imagery mean? What am I to take from this imagery? Hmm? What am I to take from this imagery? When God explained and taught the Israelites how to offer the sacrifice, 
right? They would do what? They would take this sacrifice and they would put their hands on it and name out all the sins as a symbol of what? Laying all the sins of this person onto this what? This creature who would die. This creature would die to do what? To substitute instead of the person, right? Acting as a substitute for the person. The person sinned and so he is deserving of what? Of death. Yet if he takes his sins and he puts it on this creature, this creature acts as a substitute. Instead of him dying, the creature dies. Who is the creature? Symbolized. The creature symbolizes Christ. So when we talk about a sacrificial um, uh, uh, symbol, we're talking about what? Substitution. That this lamb is being substituted instead of me for my sins, right? Now, some people take it a little too far, and they say, well, it's a substitution for who? Yes? Did Abraham do the same thing for Isaac, and then he put the sins of the world at the time? No, it wouldn't be the sins of the world. Usually what would happen is you'd take your lamb or your doves or whatever, yeah. right, whatever your sacrificial animal was, and you'd go to the priest and, and, and you would read out your sins on him, and he would slaughter so the sacrifice. The sins that Abraham put on Isaac. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a, 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 a sacrifice of sin. So, you know, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son for him, it was more to prove something. It was two things to prove God's loyalty, uh, sorry, Abraham's loyalty to God. And second thing, let me ask you a question. Did Abraham really believe that he was going to sacrifice his son? Maybe. Yeah. Did he believe that his son would die? No. Maybe. But there's something very weird that happened. When they asked him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to take my son, and we're going to go sacrifice to God, and we, we will be back. We will come back. We will come back. So the fathers explained this to us as what? This showed the true faith of Abraham, that even though he would have sacrificed his son for God, that God would have raised his son, that his son would have come back with him. All right? Also reflected in the epistle of uh, Hebrews. Yes. Hebrews, the faith of the... Exactly. 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 It's a a beautiful, beautiful... And I, I actually use this example when we're talking about the Mary Did You Know song by Clay Aiken. Mary, did you know? And, you know, it drives me crazy. Yeah, she did know. <laughs> no, she's St. Mary, man. You know, Clay Aiken, you need to go back to, you know, Sunday school or something. But, yes, Mary knew very well what her, her son, who her son was, what his purpose was, what he would do. She knew very well. I mean, this person was raised in the temple since she was 12. She knew that the Messiah would what? Would die, but would also what? Come back to life would be resurrected, would return. She knew very well, Mr. Aiken. Um, <laughs> now, acting as a substitution for our suffering, not to appease the Father. This is a very misunder- This is a very common misunderstanding. This is actually a modern um, development, and it belongs to the Western theology, belongs to the Roman Catholic Church, that Christ was substituted, was sacrificed in order to appease God because God's honor was hurt when Adam sinned against him and the only way God would uh, would be okay with things was that 
if he offered a sacrifice to make up for it. No, this is not how it is. This is not how it is at all. God is not this vindictive father, this vengeful father, right? We misunderstand this, and this kind of crept into some of the teachings that we hear about in Godly terms. But anyway, um, and some, some, have, some people have taught that. No, it is not to appease the father, per se, but it did please the father. There's a difference between appeasing the father and pleasing the father. Why? What do we hear? What do we read about? The aroma of the sacrificing, the smell of the sacrifice, going up and pleasing, being a pleasing aroma to God. Pleasing in what way? Because it was a sacrifice of life. Not to appease the Father, but to grant life to who? If I am substituting my death to somebody else, or somebody, somebody is taking my death, then he's granting me ultimately what? Life. And God is happy with that. God is happy when life returns back to his sons and his daughters, who he created intentionally to what? To live eternally. So God is happy when we offer a sacrifice. Now, Abuna, when he goes around the altar, I know I'm going over. I'm sorry, guys, but we're almost done. When Abuna upstairs offers sacrifice, uh, sorry, offers incense around the altar, right? He goes around the altar, and the deacon goes, and then they go to the other side, and you know, and and there was yes, there was a Saidi out there who thought that Abuna was trying to catch the kid and he ran and grabbed the kid. I caught him for you, Abuna. No, the Abuna is not chasing after the child in the tunic. No, what's happening is what? Is we took this from the old, from the old tradition of offering sacrifice. This was actually the way to offer sacrificial blood. You would sacrifice the animal, you would drain his blood, and then you would take the blood and you would sprinkle it. Have you ever paid attention to how Abuna does this Sharia? Right? How does he do Sharia? Same way that they used to sprinkle blood. Take a little blood, sprinkle it. Take a little blood, sprinkle it. Take a little blood, sprinkle it. And then take final some more blood and sprinkle around like this, right? Abuna is not pulling a ninja move with the shoria like this. No. What he's really doing is what? Sprinkling in the circular motion as they were taught in the Old Testament to do with the blood of the sacrifice. But over time, we decided to add a chalice box to protect the chalice. So if Abuna ever did one of these, it would be a disaster. Right? So he just goes like this. <laughs> Not an ninja move. Even though some fathers have skills. <laughs> some of the fathers have skills. <laughs> now, um, this is our fourth, and we're going to get to our fifth, and we're done, I promise. Our fourth imagery is the imagery of what? Of the victory over death. Victory of Christ, or the victory of life over death. After this, Jesus, knowing that he, all things were now accomplished, and we always read this in a very sad way on Good Friday, right? On Great Friday. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Very sad scene, right? It's very sad to those who have no hope in Christ. But to those who understand Christ, what is Christ doing? He's yelling out a victory cry. Battle cry. I was gonna put a little scene, a little video scene from Braveheart in here. You guys ever you remember that scene where he's you know he's holding up the sword? He's like, freedom. <laughs> so Christ didn't have a sword, but what is he saying? He's saying it is completed. It is finished. My salvific work, the work of my death leading to my victory, has been accomplished. It's a battle cry of victory, not of defeat. It's not sad. Be happy. Be happy because Christ knew what he was doing. 
and he did it of his own good will, of his own free will, as we say in the liturgy, right? He knowing, knowingly enough knew what he was doing. This was his battle cry of victory. It is done. It is accomplished. I can take a break now. <laughs> and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. St. Paul says what? Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them. Whose principalities and powers? Of Satan. Of Satan and his evil demonic angels. We shouldn't even call them angels, right? <clears throat> he destroyed them. He mocked them. He made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. When we look at the cross, the cross now has been changed from a symbol of shame to a symbol of what? A symbol of victory. We take pride in the cross. We take pride. God forbid that I should shame in the cross of my Savior, right? St. Paul teaches us to what? To wear our cross, to believe in our cross. He teaches everything that the church teaches us to do, to revere our cross. In the morning when I put this on, I kiss my cross. When I take it off, I kiss my cross. In the morning when I wake up, Pope Corollos, I learned this from Pope Corollos, I make the first thing I do, I make the sign of the cross. Before I go to sleep, I make the sign of the cross and I cross my room. Everything. These are all the church teachings from the fathers of the church. These are the things that they received from the apostles. This is the beauty of orthodoxy. So when I look at the cross now, the cross is no longer a sign of shame. It is a sign of what? Of God's throne. God isn't crucified on the cross in a shameful manner. He knows He's there. It's of His own free will that He is there. And He sits on the cross as a king. He's wearing His crown of thorns as His, his crown and He is king. It is finished. I am accomplishing something on this cross. This cross changes from what? From a tool of suffering to what? To my throne on earth. God's throne on earth is the cross, as St. Athanasius explains to us. And then I love this always. This is from the Easter message of St. John Chrysostom. He says what? This is a beautiful message, by the way. <clears throat> oh, death, where's your, your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you, oh, death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. This is a beautiful, powerful message. Christ is risen and death has been conquered by death. It's pretty, uh, pretty shameful, right? It's pretty embarrassing that I used your crown, O serpent, O Satan, you know, the, the, your pride to destroy you, to destroy death. By death, conquered death. And the last... Uh, imagery of salvation that we find in the church fathers is the imagery of the what? Of the supreme expression of love in action. Agape. Agape is not the breakfast meal on Sundays. Agape refers to what? God's divine sacrificial love. True Christian love. There's a big difference in the world between understanding the full potential of love and being content with humanitarian love. We, know we have three loves, right? The love of beautiful things, the love of nature, eros, right? Eros, by the way, is not erotic. Erotic and erotica came after eros. Eros had a nice, clean, um, pure uh, definition until we started using it for lust. But in actuality, eros is what? 
is the love of the beautiful. When I look at God's creation around me, I love it. I love it in what? In an eros way. I love it because I'm attracted to it. It is pleasing to my eyes. Not that I am abusing or lusting after it, but I enjoy its beauty. I love it for its beauty. Right? Just like I love a painting. Or a nice looking house. Or a Maserati. You know, all these things I love with arrows. <laughs> um, I love my fellow man. If I see an old woman crossing the street and falling, I quickly run to her and I pick her up. Why? Because of fila. The second type of love, brotherly love. Brotherly, brotherly love is what? It's not, you know, going to Philadelphia and having a cheesesteak with the gang. No, brotherly love is humanitarian love. Unfortunately, this is seen in the world today as the epitome of love. How much humanitarian love can I have for my fellow brothers and sisters? It's great. God, love is beautiful, right? And we have to distinguish in the English language, we don't have, you know, these three distinguish, uh, distinguishing words for love. You know, when I love a Snickers, I say I love a Snickers. The same way, the same word I use for loving my mom, the same word I use for loving God, right? But it's not the same meaning. It's differences, right? So, loving a Snickers is not like loving God, just so you guys know. Um, but what is agape? Agape is the type of love that is sacrificial, that is active, that is in motion, that is true, that is alive. It is a living love. It's a love that causes real change. It's a love that causes real transformation. It's not emotional. It's living, it's true, it's active, it's transcendental. transcendental. <laughs> right? And it causes real change. If I love you with God's love, what's going to happen? If I love somebody with God's love, with agape, and I pray for them, what happens? They will change. God's grace, God's love will touch their heart. That's the true love. It's the love that loves the enemies, that's agape. It's the love that loves those who persecute us, right? Who fight against us, those who are killing us. We still love them. This is the love of Christ, the love that loved us even though we were sinful. Even though we were sinful. It's a transfiguring force causing real change spiritually, physically. The death on the cross was the, what, the supreme expression of agape. And it made a real change. It didn't just make us feel good, right? We don't just say, we, oh, God's so romantically loving. and you know, <laughs> No. God is actively loving. It's a real love. And it caused real change. It caused change in our nature. It provided us with life. Provided us with God's grace. That is the last of my uh, uh, imageries for salvation. I'm so sorry I held you guys up. I shaved only five minutes off the lecture. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I wish I could have shaved more. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Do we have any questions? Any concerns? Any opinions? Comments? No? Okay, so we're, we're good? Yes, I would have. Why do we call the breakfast meal at Sunday at Abuna? <laughs> <laughs> because I could easily go to Abuna and say, Abuna, I love you so much. I really hope that you find breakfast this morning. <laughs> or I can physically, actively sacrifice of you know my time and go grab Abuna a cup of coffee. <laughs> right? It's an act of love. It's an act of of, uh, of of true love. I showed it in, in, in my sacrificing of my time. 
and, and sacrificing a few bucks if I go to Starbucks for a Buddha, which is always good. <laughs> Are you guys all, I know every, this is a Tim Hortons region. <laughs> um, you know, but I think we still have, we still have Starbucks following. It's Starbucks and stickers for McDonald's. Yeah, so, so uh, apparently, apparently second in line is uh, McDonald's coffee in Canada. It's not the same way in the U.S. You know, McDonald's coffee is not that great in the U.S. Uh, I think our second second place is Dunkin' Donuts now. Uh, but so I heard this story, and I might as well just tell you guys real quick. Apparently, the purveyors messed up from Tim Hortons, and huh? so I don't know what happened. So this is what I was told: is that the uh, the suppliers or the sources that they used to get their coffee from. They messed up and they didn't renew the contract in time and McDonald's swooped in and took yeah. took the contract and so now McDonald's has the better coffee. But Starbucks all the way. For us underground Starbucks people. <laughs> <laughs> Starbucks all the way. <laughs> um, it's such a pleasure and a blessing. Now, I will answer the question. Um, I did base a lot of this lecture on a lecture that was given by an Eastern Orthodox Metropolitan by the name of Callisto Swear. I hope you guys read for him. He has some great books. Um, if you listen to him, well, he's you know theatrical and very slow in his. You know, he talks. He talks like this, and so you know I don't know if you want to hear the lecture, but the lecture is online. Uh, it's on YouTube, and there's actually a script out of it if you just want to read it. Uh, it's a great lecture. He talks about the second half primarily. He doesn't give really a big. Uh, introduction to the need for salvation, um, but the way he answered the question of "Are you saved?" was that based on the understanding of our synergistic relationship with God, he said that I believe that I am being saved, of course, through the grace of God. Salvation is a continuous process; it is a lifelong process. We read of the desert fathers, like Saint Macarius. As he is going up, it was Saint Macarius, I believe, right? As he was going up, uh, and the devil is trying to tempt him and asking him, "Have you? Yes, have you finally? Have you finally defeated us?" And he, he didn't say anything. He said, "No, not yet, not yet," until he went inside and opened the window in my my imagery, and looked out. And he said, "Okay, yes. <laughs> now I have. Now I have." Uh, there's a lot of beautiful explanations, and we see this spirit of the concept of salvation all throughout the writings of the fathers and the writings of the desert fathers and the ethos, the, the, the orthodox life that we live in. It is a continuous thing. Don't think that it's too late. Don't think that God will not accept you regardless of what you have done. If you come back to God, God is waiting for you. He did the most to prove that to you. He gave his blood for your salvation. Do you think that there's anything you can do that would allow God to double think his sacrifice, to rethink his offer? Nothing. Nothing that you can do. God is waiting for you to come back. Come back. Come back and live in God's presence, right? You know what you're doing. You know what you're doing that's wrong. You know what you should be doing. Stop doing what you're supposed, what you're not supposed to be doing. Start doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right? God bless you. God be with you. Thank you so much for having me, Abuna. Thank you for thank you, being with us here. Thank you for your patience.
thank you for giving us this very comprehensive